This is increment 205 of our Hebrews 2020 study. And between the last time I spoke with you and this time, I know you've enjoyed, and I hope you've enjoyed, the benefits of the communicative gift of Brian Messick, Pastor Brian Messick. And when I heard his first message, I commented immediately to myself and then to Brian in 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16, how his progress had become evident throughout these past couple of years of study, of adversity, and of things that we've all been going through. So I hope you will take full advantage of Brian's stirred up gift. And he will be speaking staggered with my messages for a little while up until around Easter because he's speaking on Christ and the Passover, doing a series on that. So we're trying to stagger his messages with mine as we actually approach the time of the Passover this year, which I believe is April 15th to the 23rd on the Jewish calendar, and of course Easter being April 17th on the Christian calendar, so-called. We are therefore on a continuum in Hebrews 2020, and this is increment 205, and I'm going to be engaged in a two-part series in the next two increments in Hebrews on the subject of to save completely. What does it mean? What's it look like? What does a complete salvation look like? And so we'll begin with prayer. Father, our total sufficiency is of you and none of ourselves, so we pray that you'll grant us a sufficient understanding and challenge us with the true, the real meaning of what it means to be saved completely by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. There are many nuns being made today, joining, sub, joining a particular subculture of nuns, and I don't mean N-U-N, I mean N-O-N-E. S, nuns. More and more young people in the so-called millennial generation and the following generation are checking the box nun, N-O-N-E, when asked about what their religious affiliation is. The answer for this is evident, I think, and it's in the abysmal failure of the so-called evangelical church and the Christendom at large to be a challenge and a blessing to the emerging generation. And I believe the message that I'm proclaiming to you today and have been and will in the next increments be part of the solution for the unfulfilled yearning and longing of the present and the emerging generations in our country and in this world. And so we begin with Hebrews 7. We're in chapter 7, verses 18, 25, generally around that paragraph. 
And we'll also be considering Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, and Romans 5, 9 to 10 by way of a comparison. So the next two increments consist of a heuristic treatise. Heuristic is H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C. That simply means that the reader or hearer is put into a position of discovering for his or herself what to save completely means. I want to present these increments in such a way that there'll be a discovery on the part of you who listen and perhaps who read and take notes on the written part of this. So it's a heuristic treatise from the Greek word meaning to discover. Speaking to his disciples, and this is going to be kind of a, well, seemingly bizarre lead-in to today's increment, but speaking to his disciples, Jesus said a curious thing in Luke 17:22. He spoke of, quote, one of the days of the Son of Man. Please notice that. One of the days of the Son of Man. Luke 17:22. In fact, the full sentence is, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. What's intriguing about this prediction is the phrase, one of the days of the Son of Man. The implication is that there's not just one day of the Son of Man, but more than one day of the Son of Man. A person who holds the view called preterism, or sometimes full preterism, may well have the conviction that the day of the Son of Man occurred exclusively in A.D. 70, and that was it. A futurist, on the other hand, might cling to the conviction that the day of the Son of Man must exclusively refer to the final parousia, or what's known as the second coming or the second and universal appearing of Jesus, the Son of Man. It could be argued that indeed the events of A.D. 70, really the events over a seven-year period, 66 to 73 A.D., but the heart of which is A.D. 70, that that constituted a day of the Son of Man. And this is clear in Matthew 24, where, quote, the coming of the Son of Man, as Jesus himself called it in Matthew 24, 27, and again in 2437, and the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky in Matthew 2430 are associated with events that Jesus said would occur within the time span of the generation to whom he was speaking. And so the preterist would be right to assume that that particular day of the Son of Man is, was fulfilled ultimately in August of A.D. 70. Another day of the Son of Man, it could be argued, <clears throat> is the time frame of that which Hebrews calls the days of Christ's flesh in Hebrews 5.7. For those days included the betrayal of the Son of Man into the hands of sinners, Hamartolon, Matthew 26, 45. That which Hebrews 12, 3 refers to as 
Jesus' endurance of the, quote, hostility of sinners. Same word is used there as in Matthew 26:45, hamartolon. This day of the Son of Man is the incarnation of God's eternal Son, the eternal Word, which is God, John 1.1 and 1.14. So the incarnation itself could be called one of the days of the Son of Man. That culminated in his rejection, his crucifixion, death, burial, and then resurrection from the dead and ascension to the Father. Again, this day of the Son of Man culminated in the Son of Man coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, or coming with the clouds, we could say, to the Ancient of Days, where he received an indestructible kingdom and an indissoluble priesthood. Daniel 7.13 to 14 and also Daniel 7.27 pinpoints that day of the Son of Man. This day of the Son of Man climaxed with his exaltation, his session, as it's called, above the heavens at the right hand of the eternal majesty, which is his father. Now, evidently, the days, small d, when the disciples of Jesus would long to see one of the days, large or capital D, days of the Son of Man, were to be in seasons when under severe distress and persecution between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, the persecuted disciples would certainly long for the coming and thus for the vindication of the Son of Man and their salvation. But during those days of distress, as Jesus predicted, they would not see one of those days of the Son of Man. In fact, they were warned in that time period, not to, quote, run after those who were going to say, look here or look there, Jesus said. Instead, the Son of Man in his day, again in Luke 17, 24 this time, will be as the lightning flashing from horizon to horizon, lighting up the whole sky. That's Jesus' metaphor for his day that it would be obvious, in other words, to everyone and not cryptic or hidden like a false messiah in the desert or a secret room of the old temple complex. This day of the Son of Man applied to the day of the judgment of old Jerusalem and the demolition of its Herod refurbished temple in A.D. 70. For the authority to judge had been given to Jesus, and note this phrase, because he is the Son of Man. All judgment was entrusted to him precisely because he is the Son of Man. John 5:27. So that day of the Son of Man, which we call the Christ event, concluded with the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world, the cosmos, the universe. The day of the Son of Man, which we associate with the, event, the events of A.D. 70, on the other hand, concluded with the actual cessation of all the animal sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. 
Both the judgment of A.D. 30, which we call the judgment of the cross, where the Son of Man, to whom all judgment was entrusted, was judged, and the judgment of A.D. 70, which is the coming of the Son of Man in his vindication. Both of these were actually judgments unto salvation. They were exercises or exertions of God's saving justice. For in his last words to Jerusalem, Jesus spoke not only of the desolation of the city, Matthew 23, 38 and 24, 15, but he also spoke of the time when the inhabitants of Jerusalem would see him again and say, Blessed is he who comes with the name Yahweh, Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine. Now we in our own time, what about us? We in our own time, I think I can speak for perhaps millions of Christians, that we yearn to see one of the days of the Son of Man. The day that to us is still future. It's called the day of Christ in Philippians 1.6, 1.10, and 2.16. It's called the day of our Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 1.8. Really, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Greek text. Or the day of our Lord Jesus in 2 Corinthians 1.14, compared with Hebrews 13.20. The day of our Lord Jesus, who is the Son of Man. It is the day of the Son of Man that every eye will see, according to Revelation 1.7. It is the day that will disclose the quality of every man's work in 1 Corinthians 3.13. In other words, did each and every man work as a co-laborer together with God or as a producer of wood, hay, and stubble in the Adamic ontology. So the disciples to whom Jesus was speaking longed to see one of the days of the Son of Man because the days of the Son of Man are days of salvation. Now is one of the days of the Son of Man who also lives to make intercession for us to save us completely. Now is a day of the Son of Man then, and now is a day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, referring to Isaiah 49, 8. The Son of Man is so called not only because he is an individual man and person, the God-man, but also because he is a representative man, the inclusive representative. I think that term ultimately came from C.H. Dodd in his study of the Gospel of John. Jesus, the inclusive representative of all humankind, also known as the second man who is from heaven in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-seven, The last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. The heavenly man, and this is vital as to the phrase to save completely, the heavenly man 
whose image we are to bear completely in the extremity of our salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. That is, when we are saved to the uttermost or saved completely. Now, if this Son of Man is also the Savior of mankind, and he is, then the salvation he brings must have something to do with our inclusion in him, since he is a, an inclusive representative. Our inclusion in him ultimately means union with God. We're getting close to what it means to be saved completely. This union with God in which we are partakers of God's nature, not by nature, that is, we don't become God, but by grace. And this partaking of the divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4, not by nature, but by grace, must consist of a salvation that goes beyond the usual notion of salvation as the mere rectification of the effects of the fall and the mere liberation from sin and sins. I said it must go beyond that. And if the nuns of our time are ever to recover a hope, it's not going to be the standard evangelical hope of personal salvation through an imputation of righteousness on personal faith and then the hope of a happy hereafter. It's going to be a much greater concept of salvation, a much greater soteriological framework and hope. Revelation 1-7 again alludes to the apocalyptic prophetic Son of Man vision in Daniel 7-13-14 when it says, Look, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even the eyes of those who impaled him. And all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. Revelation 1-7 then speaks of one of the days of the Son of Man. That is, the day that was imminent. In fact, present when John wrote Revelation. But this same verse has a certain universal eschatology in it as well. Speaking of a day, capital D, yet future, even to us. In that day of the Son of Man, future, every eye will see him who was pierced while being made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Impaled to a tree while being made a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 In Revelation 1.10-20 John's vision at Patmos is of one like a son of man very significantly Revelation 1.13 who declares to John don't be afraid I am the first and the last and the living one and by the way 
I was dead. But look, I'm alive and well for the endless ages. Revelation 117b to 18a. In that day of the Son of Man, every knee will willingly bow and every tongue confess Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 to 11, confer with Isaiah 45, 23. We long to see that day of the Son of Man. I speak for myself and perhaps for millions of contemporary Christians. And yet we're not seeing that day. Not yet. But as we wait, we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. With the eyes of our heart. So we do see the day of the Son of Man when he appeared once at the crux of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself, Hebrews 9.26. And as we wait, we see the day of the Son of Man that occurred in A.D. 70 when the old system was dramatically and once and for all and forever set aside with all of its redundant animal sacrifices. We long to see the day of the Son of Man, which Hebrews 9.28 calls the second appearing of Christ, the great archpriest. We're not seeing that day yet, but we wait with intense expectation. We are right to pray, therefore, come, Lord Jesus, in Revelation 22.20. In praying this prayer, we are praying for God's kingdom to come because his kingdom is embodied in Jesus, the great king. Now, this seemingly bizarre lead-in to increment 205 of our Hebrews 2020 series is really not so strange if we consider that day of the Son of Man, which is his first appearing, in which he offered himself once and for all through the unrepeatable sacrifice and through it remove the sin of the world. This appearance was an apocalypse just as much as his second appearance will be. The climax of his first appearance was his manifestation not only as priest but also as the Lamb of God, perhaps even more significantly. The priest and the victim the offerer and the offering of the sacrifice that has eternal and universal justifying, sanctifying, and unifying efficacy. By unifying, I mean the power to unify or bring into union mankind and God. The explicit use of the phrase, the Son of Man, incidentally, in Hebrews, is Hebrews 2. We've already looked at it, and I want to quote it again, 2, 5 through 9, my translation. For you see, it is not to angels that God subjected the future world about which we are speaking. Now somewhere, meaning Psalm 8, 4 through 6, someone, meaning the Holy Spirit through David, solemnly testifies, saying, what is man? or humankind, we could say, that you remember him, or, 
the Son of Man, that you visit him for the purpose of bringing salvation. You made him inferior to angels for a short while. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You subjected all things under his feet. As things now stand, goes the writer, we are not yet seeing everything in subjection to him, but we see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that by the grace of God, or far from God, he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death. In this paragraph, both man and the Son of Man have double meanings. Mankind in totality and Jesus as the single inclusive representative of mankind in totality. The other notable reference to the Son of Man in the Old Testament is, as I mentioned, Daniel 7:13 to 14 where Daniel saw this extraordinary one like a son of man coming in the clouds to the ancient of days. Son of man is also what Yahweh calls Ezekiel throughout that prophetic book. But there it doesn't have the special connotation that it has in Daniel. Daniel's is the quintessential vision of the son of man. It is not However, a vision of the Son of Man coming in the clouds to be seen by every eye. It's his coming to the Ancient of Days. This is the moment of the ascension of Jesus who was taken up in a cloud out of the visibility of man in Acts 1.5 after his resurrection from the dead. So Daniel's vision is of the moment when Jesus, the Son of Man, to whom all judgment was given and who experienced the judgment for sins came to the Father. He who approached the Ancient of Days in Daniel's vision will be seen by every eye according to John's predictive vision. He who came in the clouds to the Father after accomplishing his once and for all and forever sacrifice for sins, Hebrews 7.27, which we'll explore soon, will come to be seen by every eye in his second appearing. So John combines, I think with a genius that can only be attributed to the spirit of truth, John combines Daniel 7.13 to 14 with Zechariah 12.10 in Revelation 1.7. By doing that, he identifies this Son of Man with Yahweh pierced. Yahweh pierced. By conflating Zechariah 12.10 with Daniel 7.13-14, John ingeniously refers to an appearance of the Son of Man that is different from the one in Daniel. In Daniel, the Son of Man, also known as Cloud Man, is not seen by every eye, but only the eyes of the prophet Daniel and of the inhabitants of heaven and the Ancient of Days. In the conflation of Zechariah 12.10 
and Daniel 7.13 to 14 in Revelation 1.7, it is predicted that all the eyes of all humanity, known as all the tribes of the earth, will see him while evidently receiving the universal gift of repentance and the realization that they are related to him as parents to a firstborn son. Zechariah 12.10b, the Septuagint is prototokos, which is also used for firstborn in Romans 8.29, Colossians 1.15, 1.18, Hebrews 1.6, and 12.23, along with Revelation 1.5. So we're left in a heuristic treatment of this passage. We're left to fill in the details of history connected with the night vision of Daniel. These details, happily, can be supplied by a careful study of, you guessed it, Hebrews. One like a son of man coming in the clouds of the Ancient of Days, where he receives an indestructible and endless kingdom. That is Jesus himself, who having passed through the heavens in Hebrews 4.14, after having offered himself once and for all in Hebrews 7.27, and after having been led up from the realm of the dead by the God of all peace, in Hebrews 13.20. He then ascends to the highest height of heaven and completes his action as priest through entering into the region beyond the second curtain, Hebrews 6.20, of the heavenly holy of holies. After having secured eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12, through his own blood, he then approaches the Ancient of Days, his eternal father, who then offers him a seat at his right hand. Jesus now sits above the heavens at the right hand of the unspeakable and incomprehensible majesty as the eternal advocate, mediator, and priest representing all of humankind and all of creation to their immense salvific benefit. This is a hope that I hope draws the nuns. I think we can say that we're seeing one of the days of the Son of Man now by seeing Jesus with the eyes of our heart in his glorious dignity as eternal priest and mediator. That he always lives to make intercession for us, to save us to the uttermost, to save to the uttermost, or to save completely those who come to God through him is ultimately a declaration that his priesthood not only involves the salvation that he obtained for the world in his death and resurrection, but being saved by his life, Romans 5.10, also means timely assistance in our times of trial in the present agona. He hasn't left us alone in these present crises. Ought not the present appearing of Jesus as great archpriest before the Father for us? Ought that not be considered one of the days of the Son of Man? I'll leave that to you to answer. And can we not see that day as we await his glorious universal appearance? After all, we see Jesus, and he is the Son of Man. Now speaking of Romans 5.10, 
There's a clear correlation between Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 5.9-10. Consider Romans 5.9-10. I developed this translation in our study of reading Romans with the light on. Here it is, Romans 5.9 and 10, an expanded translation. Much more assuredly then, since we have been now justified by Christ's blood, and that means his redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying death as God's paschal lamb, we will be saved from the aforementioned wrath through him, the wrath mentioned by Paul's opponent in Romans 1.18. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through his son's death, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Justified by Christ's blood and saved from the wrath threatened by Paul's opponent in Romans 1.18, has a reference to, again, the blood of the Paschal Lamb. Here I think Brian Messick, Pastor Messick's message and mine may intersect a bit. It has reference to the blood of the Paschal or Passover Lamb and the salvation of those with this blood on their doorposts just previous to the exodus of Israel from the enslaving tyranny of Egypt. Exodus 12. This blood saved the Israelites from the temporal, historical wrath of God that had come upon fascist pharaohs, Egypt. Paul indicates here and elsewhere that we have not been, quote, destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 In Romans, the blood that justifies... In 5.9 is later to be seen as the blood of Jesus, also in Hebrews 10.19, through whose one righteous act God justifies and gives life to all of humanity. Romans 5.18 compared with 1 Corinthians 15.22. Again, the term blood contains a clear reference to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. In Romans 5.10, having been reconciled by his death, also has a universal application in 2 Corinthians 5.19, where Paul declares that, quote, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling the world to himself. The world has been reconciled to God. It awaits its complete redemption, which will be the consummation of God's creation, the new creation of all things, to participate in the life in the highest degree, the life of God from which no one will ever be alienated again in Ephesians 4.18. The point of correlation between Romans 5.10 and Romans and Hebrews, rather, 7.25 is the phrase saved by his life in Romans 5.10, which correlates with Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come through him to God. He lives, he lives 
to make intercession for them always. Jesus' reconciling death is followed by his saving life. To be saved by Jesus' life is to be saved completely through his intercession as our great archpriest. For Hebrews, this salvation includes deliverance and preservation in times of distress. And that's only a tiny part, a small, almost atomic increment of his so great salvation. But it does include deliverance and preservation in times of distress, something of great value to the recipients of this homily. For they had endured the world's hostility and opposition after their initial enlightenment, Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. And they were also facing similar tests again, along with the pressure to apostatize and to effectually or effectively renounce their confession of Jesus as the Son of God. But to be saved completely is something far greater than this. To be saved by his life is to be brought into participation with his life and the very life, capital L, and ineffable fellowship with the triune God. Now we're retreating really back into a little safer doctrine right now, but I think it's important to do so. To recap some things in Romans, there are at least five phrases that carry a dynamic equivalency in Paul, meaning they mean the same thing. One, the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, Romans 5.19, which was obedience to the extent of death, the death of the cross, in Philippians 2.8. This is also known theologically as Jesus' meritorious obedience. Lonergan says that in his volume on the redemption, I think volume 9 of his collection. Meritorious obedience is a subject broached in Hebrews 5.8, where that obedience resulted in eternal salvation in Hebrews 5.9. And in Hebrews 5, Hebrews rather 10, 5 through 10, meritorious obedience of Jesus resulted in, quote, the offering of the body of Christ once and for all, according to the all-saving will of God. Hebrews 10.10, compared with 1 Timothy 2.3 and 4, that resulted in turn in the perfection of those who are being sanctified in Hebrews 10.14. Secondly, another phrase that carries a dynamic equivalency in Paul is his one righteous act, Romans 5.18. Thirdly, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ means the same thing, essentially. Galatians 2.16, 2.20, 3.22, 3.23, etc. Fourth, the death of Jesus Christ, a dynamic equivalency, Romans 5.10. And fifth, the blood of Jesus Christ, Romans 5.9. So it's notable that Jesus' obedience resulted in making many righteous and in the acknowledgement by every tongue that the Lord is Jesus to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 9 to 11, that his one righteous act resulted in the justification of all, in Romans 5, 18, and that by his death the world was reconciled. If you're missing the universal 
connotations in this, you're missing a whole lot. Also reminiscent of Hebrews 7.25 is Jesus, the good shepherd's statement about his sheep in John 10.28. There Jesus says, and this is the Holman Christian Standard Bible that nails it, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Save completely, Hebrews 7.25, and they will never perish, ever. Christian Standard Bible rightly emphasizes these words, never perish, ever. One more correlation will prove fruitful for our understanding of the meaning of Hebrews 7.25. And I speak of the correlation of save completely in Hebrews 7.25 with 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And I want you to remember that all of these things I'm saying do not fully approach what it means to save completely. I'm leaving that up to the Holy Spirit and you to discover through him. But in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, compared with 7.25, we have something. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Notice that. Sanctify you completely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Holman Christian Standard again with an emphasis by yours truly. To save completely. And we're not only going to deal with that in this increment, but also in 206 coming up. To save completely is roughly equivalent to sanctify wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, or completely. Which means to preserve intact the whole person, spirit, soul, and body. Especially with the reference to the body in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. We're faced with the resurrection implication again, an implication strengthened by the fact that this action is performed by the God of peace, who, according to the author of the Hebrews homily, quote, brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, close quote. Though Paul used the optative mood, O-P-T-A-T-I-V, an optative mood which is a wish or a prayerful desire in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he nevertheless had no doubts about its realization. In 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Paul follows up with this assuring word, faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. The faithful God will sanctify completely those whom he called, because those whom God called are those whom he justified because of Jesus Christ's righteous act of meritorious obedience to the death of the cross. That which Martinus C. de Boer often called the faithful death of Christ in his well-recommended commentary on Galatians. If you're studying Galatians, don't miss that commentary by de Boer, small d-e, capital B-O-E-R. We've been presenting, therefore, in closing, a marvelous mashup of biblical verses in this increment. But we're still hovering over this paragraph 
and don't forget it, in Hebrews 7. I'll read 7, 18 to 25 so that we can see our concept lodged in its context. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing complete. On the other hand, there's the introduction of a better hope. That's what's going to appeal to the nuns of our time, N-O-N-E-S, a better hope. They need a better hope. They yearn for a better hope. And they yearn for the better hope than that is offered by the programmatized, programized churches with their programized entertaining services and with their brief pep talks instead of biblical teachings. With their marketing ployed built mega churches, all of that has failed. All of it's been weighed in the balances and found wanting. A better hope needs to be offered now, a larger hope, a bigger hope, a universal hope. A better hope through which we draw near to God, Hebrews 7.20, and none of this happened without the taking of an oath. For on the one hand, men became priests without an oath, but on the other hand, he, Jesus, became a priest through the oath of the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. By so much then, Jesus was made the guarantor of a better covenant. That verse 722 is going to keep playing its wonderful note throughout Hebrews 8 and even Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, and even into 12. On top of this, verse 23, on the one hand, many became priests, a plurality being a weakness here, by reason of death, preventing them from continuing indefinitely in office. But he, on the other hand, because he remains forever, has a permanent non-transferable priesthood. Therefore, and here's our subject, he is able to save completely those who come through him to God. He lives to make intercession for them always. So the subsection of the symphony of Hebrews closes on a loud soteriological note. When Hebrews talks about salvation, it uses descriptors like so great in Hebrews 2.3, eternal in 5.9, and complete in 7.25. Jesus, therefore, is a great and a complete and an eternal savior. It closes with a reference to a complete salvation effected by the ability of our great archpriest and we're made to stand in wonder. And I close with that wonder today. We're made to stand in wonder and awe at that complete salvation and we're still led to ask because we don't quite grasp it all. Just what is it? Amen.